Howdy. I'm Kate Cavanaugh, and you're listening to The Groundwork Podcast. This begins an exploration of connectedness, looking at our own nature through the lens of nature. Mind, body, and soil. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Groundwork Podcast. I am your host, Kate Cavanaugh, and it is a pleasure to dive in deep with you each week to explore the interconnected themes of mind, body, and soil. This week, a couple of things have been in my mind in tandem, and they are the idea of transparency, of obfuscation, and of death. And I think that this week's episode with Anna Borgman is going to really tie all of these three things together. But before I dive into our beautiful guest, I wanted to talk a little bit about this. There's a saying that what we don't know, we can't understand, or what we don't see, we can't understand. And I think when we're considering our food system, there is so much obfuscation, some of it intentional, and some of it just closed off to us, whether it's in rural areas that we rarely venture to and see, or whether it's shut behind walls and doors in slaughterhouses and feed barns and concentrated animal feeding operations. It's very closed off to us. And within that, that begins to be a space where we don't see it. We don't think about it. We don't know it. And therefore, we don't even think to try to understand it. And I think that when it comes to our food system, slaughter and processing is one of the most elusive and hidden aspects. And I think that is a reflection of our disconnection with food and our disconnection with death, but I think it's just also how it's been built. And that isn't to shame anybody that doesn't participate in this system. If you're living in a urban environment and you shop at a grocery store or even a butcher shop or even a farm, this just isn't a piece of things that you're going to see. But that being said, I think that in many ways, it is one of the most important steps along the food chain. And the more we can bring transparency to that step and open it up where people are getting a peek inside of that, and that can set their curiosity alight to learn more is really a dream situation, which brings me to my guest today, Anna Borgman, who is a slaughter woman in Montana. And it was such a pleasure to get to sit down with someone who has such an acute curiosity around our food system and such a beautiful self-awareness around what she does know and what she doesn't know and what she has experienced and what she knows that she hasn't experienced that she sees others within the industry experience. And I think you'll see just how much that awareness really begins to shape a, a better understanding, even for myself, around this crucial aspect of the food system and, and what it means to kill our food and to process it. We just passed the Thanksgiving holiday, and every Thanksgiving, one of the things I think about the most are the hands that touch our food. 
and just what an intimate act eating is to begin with. And I know we've talked about this on this podcast that to lift fork to your mouth and to take food into your body is incredibly intimate. But so is the intimacy of the hands that touch our food, whether they are pulling a carrot from the ground or cutting off a head of cabbage or they are killing and then processing into cuts our meat, that these hands that touch our food are one of the most important things to remember and to have reverence for and to begin to peel back that obfuscation and that veil on. And we really do that in this episode. And I'm just, I'm really curious to hear how this impacts everybody and how you consider everything that we talk about within this episode. Anna is better read than I am and just a wealth of knowledge and information. And her Instagram account is a beautiful peek inside a part of the food chain that you rarely get to see. And so I encourage everybody to seek out her Instagram account as well as her writing and her business forage fed to learn a little bit more and to get a little bit closer to your food. I think that when we're thinking about creating transparency where obfuscation is so present. Part of that is just getting curious and wanting to peel back layer by layer slowly. And I think that that piece around death to come back to this is one of the most obscured things within our culture, whether we're talking about the death of meat for food or we're talking about human death. And so much of this is about just getting curious, just peeling back the layers, allowing ourselves to sit with the truth that this is a part of life and part of the cycle and a deep part of nature and how things are regenerated through these cycles throughout deep time. So please dive in. There are lots of resources in the show notes and please do not miss Anna's writing. Do not miss her Instagram account and let it just celebrate this beautiful woman and her work in the world. If this podcast resonated with you and you are excited at getting this unique peek inside of our food system with all of the guests that come on the Groundwork podcast, may I ask you the biggest favor? Will you go and hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening to podcasts? And if you feel called, leave a review or a rating and just let everyone know how this podcast impacts you. It really helps us organically grow our audience and helps other ears find what I think is this incredible, important information. Thank you so much for being a listener. We have a couple of notes from our sponsors before we dive into this beautiful podcast with Anna. These are little treats that help support the show. And if it's something that you feel called to, then it's a reciprocal relationship in that supports you and supports me. So without further ado, a couple of notes from our sponsors and then on to our podcast with Anna. 
While we're on the topic of transparency, one of the places that I think there is the most obfuscation is within the bedding community. When we're talking about mattresses, pillows, cushions, whether it's for us or our children or our infants, there is not a lot of transparency into the materials that go into these items that are in contact with our skin for over a third of our life. That means that flame retardants and materials with high amounts of volatile organic compounds or VOCs are touching our skin while we heat up and sweat and sleep. That's why I really value the transparency of Home of Wool. This is at homeofwool.com, which is an incredible woman-owned company in Bulgaria that focuses on sourcing the most amazing GOTS certified and Ecotech certified wool and organic linen and cotton for their mattresses, pillows, all kinds of custom cushions and baby items. And we have used their pillows and their duvet cover for over a year and it has been the most divine place to sleep and I love that I can trust how these items are interacting with my body. You can get a 10% discount code using my name, K-A-T-E-K-A-V-A-N-A-U-G-H, Kate Cavanaugh, when you go to homeofwool.com and enter that discount code. Again, the discount code is Kate Cavanaugh and you can receive that at homeofwool.com. Yeah, it's just so exciting. I, I, I've watched you on Instagram for, I don't know, I think we've been kind of like vaguely going back and forth for the last year and a half or so. And so it's just always such a pleasure to actually be on with someone after that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it's about that long that I, I had known of you for a little while and I have some friends in Colorado that know of you and they're like, do you know Kate? And I'm like, I don't, you know, I know of her and I know her work. And I remember reading, you know, your piece in the New York Times and just loving all that. So, yeah, I'm so excited to finally connect because I think we have a lot of the same thoughts on oh. things and we come from different yeah. sides of it, too. So, yeah, I know. And and this is really like I'm just so in awe of what you do, because the the side of butchery and and processing that you get to see is very different than what I've experienced. Like I really am just a just a cut and wrap butcher outside of, you know, we process all of our own meat. And so but that side of things I've certainly interacted with and have a really good relationship with all of our slaughterhouses in Colorado, but not something that I've done on a daily basis. So I just really admire it. And with that, with that, I kind of, I'd love to know how you got into this industry and what led you to meet to begin with, because I don't know that much about your backstory. Yeah. It's kind of, um, a long winding one. I, when I was young, I raised sheep, just like 4-H sheep. We lived in central Oregon, kind of in just big uh, farm community. And so I grew up doing that and, you know, raised them for market and understood all of that and didn't love it. Like I would sit in their pens and cry after the fair and just, I, I knew, you know, I knew what was going to happen. And I, I, I didn't even, I couldn't eat lamb for the longest time because I was just so attached to these animals, but I didn't, I didn't care that other people did. I just, I just couldn't do it. And then I accidentally ate it one time. My brother had like some lamb euro in the fridge and I ate it and he was like, you ate my food and it was lamb. And I was like, Oh geez, that was really good. <laughs> and I, you know, I, I, ate, I ate other meat. It wasn't ever a, a thing, but 
yeah, ended up, we moved when I was probably like 14 and I kind of became detached from that whole side of things for quite a while. And then I got into skiing really deep and I was a pretty intense ski bum for like two decades. And, uh, that led me to actually moving to Australia and, um, working and living at a ski resort there. And I, the only way I could live there is if I had a job up at the resort because it was so remote, you couldn't like travel back and forth. And so I got a job at a French restaurant called Jean-Michel at the Knickerbocker. And it was this French chef, Jean-Michel. And I was just like a barista and a bartender and waiting tables and, and not in the kitchen. I wasn't cooking at that point. I just needed a job. And he scared the crap out of me. Like he was just <laughs> so intense. <laughs> he was so intense and everyone in the little ski village knew it. And they kind of thought it was hilarious that I was working there. There were only three of us that were, that worked there. It was Jean-Michel and his wife that ran the place. And I was terrified. He was like this very intense French chef and he didn't put up with a lot of BS and he would get mad at us when things went wrong, but he was making the most incredible food I've ever had. And it kind of blew my mind. I mean, I, I just, I hadn't consistently had food like that. He was making his own sausages. I didn't know that was a thing. I was like, you made sausages like that. <laughs> he was making his mustard. He was making all his bread and he was doing it all with, you know, he had one other cook in there. And I just, it, we started bonding near the end. Like it was a little contentious at first. And by the time I left, we were both in tears and he's like, are you coming back? I was like, I don't think so, but this has been life changing truly. And I ended up going to Spain after that and spending some time in San Sebastian, which is kind of the food capital of Spain in a sense. It's they're obsessed with their food and the Basque people just have a, a deep relationship with their food. Yeah. A deep pride. And, uh, I, I read after that, uh, I had, I think I mentioned to you, Mark Kurlansky's Basque history of the world. And I had always been interested in history, but learning about food history, just, it had never occurred to me. I don't know why, but it had never occurred to me that there were these deep stories behind why they, people ate what they ate. And so being in Spain and especially in the Basque country and eating salt cod, which is bacalao, and it's everywhere. You eat it at almost every meal. And learning that, oh, well, they learned how to salt fish, they think, from the Vikings that came down and taught them how to do that. And salting fish allowed them to go on longer whaling journeys because they were whaling people. And they ended up probably one of the first people from Europe to end up on North America, which they kind of kept a secret to themselves because they were smart. And, uh, but just learning about all that. And I was like, okay, I, you know, I was a writer at that time. I have a journalism degree and I thought, well, maybe this is the route I want to go. Cause I was pretty lost at the time. I was kind of over skiing. I, I needed to kind of grow up a little bit, not that I have, but, and I thought, well, <laughs> good. Maybe, going up is overrated. Yeah, no, it's not going to happen at this point, but I just, thought, well, maybe I can write about food and food history, but I didn't know anything about food. I couldn't cook. I had, you know, it's like, I remember cooking one thing in college and feeling pretty proud of myself and, and that was it. And my mom's a really good cook, but I just never picked it up. And so I happened to be back in Oregon and there was a culinary school pretty close to where I lived. And I was like, well, I'm, I'm just going to go to culinary school. And God, that first day, the anxiety, I was like, we're just doing knife skills, literally just like dicing carrots. And I was terrified did not sleep the night before and 
And then two, I, you know, two years in, I was like deep into baking. I got very into um, breads and it was during those two years, specifically a butchery class that I fell head over heels in love with cutting meat. And it was at first just like the, the physical work of it and the aesthetics of it. Like, it's just beautiful to me. I, there's oh, yeah. something, yeah, I, <laughs> I don't oh, know yeah. what it was. It's and, stunning. Yeah, yeah, it is. It really is. And yeah, just the physicality of it too. And mm-hmm. I don't know, I, it touched something in me and I was like, well, now this is what I have to do. And I ended up um, in Portland and I went to grad school there, a program called Food Systems and Society. And it was uh, focused on social issues within the food system rather than like the, I don't know, the statistics of it. It was more the human side of it. And that kind of, that completely changed my view of the world. And I was also kind of doing some work with um, Camus Davis at the Good Meat Project. I had been in contact with her and I was totally inspired by what she was doing. I didn't and, know that you knew Camus. Oh, I love Camus. I talked, to, I talked to her like last week. So that's, really? that's great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's awesome. And everything that she was doing, I was like, this is, this is it. Like this is the end all be all of, of food for me, which was her doing the slaughter classes and teaching about regenerative ag and then going all the way through butchery. And it was like, there's no closer way to get, you know, you can't get closer to food than that. You just can't. And then through that, deciding I wanted to also learn how to hunt and kind of wanting to live somewhere else. And so I ended up, I'm in Montana now and um, taught myself how to hunt. And as I was here, you know, cooked at a few restaurants and finally was like, I need to I had such an imposter syndrome about butchery because I hadn't done it consistently, like as a job, it was just something I I knew about and had, had done off and on. And so now I've been at the meat shop, actually not, I I cut meat for the first, I think three months I was there. And then since then I've been it on the kill floor for the last year and a half. So yeah, it's been a roundabout (laughs) way of getting here. I love the roundabout journeys because I think it adds all these different layers of curiosity into the way that you view the world. And even just you saying that I can see the way that your perspective has been built and that you're, you're teasing out some of the social aspects and the historical aspects and just the connection and all of these pieces and the cooking, which is a huge part of it. And all of these pieces tie together. And I, I haven't read Mark Kurlansky's, um, Basque history, but I've read salt and I've read, I think it's cod where he talks about how these foods, I mean, they changed the world. They changed like our relationship with food has the power to change everything about our society. Yeah. I mean, it drives, it starts wars, right? I mean, it's like, it's yeah the driving factor for, in my mind for everything. And so, yeah. Yes, this is where it all starts. And so I think with that, I actually, I kind of want to start from a historical space, if that's okay with you, because I've been thinking a lot about, I've been thinking a lot about our historical relationship with hunting and with how that translates into our modern day relationship with food. And actually, before I get into that, as I was considering this podcast and as I was thinking about talking about some of these topics, one of my big questions for you is what you call yourself on the kill floor. Because as I thought about this, we're not hunters. Is this when you're working the job where you're the person that takes the animal's life? Are you the, are you the killer? Are you the processor? Are you the harvester? 
And I, and I almost, I had a little, I think language is really important. And I was really curious that I met a little bit of resistance with myself. And I meet it too when I talk about us processing animals here on our own farm. Like, what is that word? What is that verb that's happening? And so I actually want to start there before I unpack anything else. I love that. I think about language all the time. I, there was a sociology class I took in college that, and I was not a good student in college, but I somehow went to this class. And it, it was, uh, they're talking about language as a precursor for thought, right? Like this idea that if you don't have, and, and it's just an idea that, you know, it's like, you can't obviously think about things without having the language for it, but it's much easier to think about something and form ideas if you have the language in your head to talk about it to yourself or to other people. And so, yeah, I like, I think about that all the time. And for me, yeah, I'm the only girl out there. So everyone else calls themselves a uh, slaughterman. And I'm like, I guess I'm a slaughter man, but I'm, am I a slaughter woman? Is that a word? Like, if, am I, cause I think slaughterman is, that works for what we're doing because that, I mean, it just says it like it is, but sometimes like when I'm writing out, you know, a bio for myself, I'm like, I'm a slaughter woman. haha. But like, damn it, there is no really word for me specifically that feels like my my word. But yeah, I think, I know within the, the hunting community, yeah, the um, idea of saying that you harvested something or even like, I think it's within like turkey hunting that you reaped something, you know, it's like there are all these different kind of softer words to use instead of killing. And I, at least at the shop, none of us have any uh, reservations about saying we slaughter, we kill because when you're doing it all day, when you kill 12 beef in a day or 25 sheep or whatever, like you just, that you can't call it anything else. You're covered in blood. You're covered in blood and you just watched a bunch of animals die and you didn't harvest them. <laughs> you know, you slaughtered them. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's how we refer to it on the farm because I don't want to, I don't want to beat around that bush and I want to be, I think I want to be honest with myself and I want to be honest with the process. And for me, that involves using, I think, the language that is true to it. And I just, this was something that I, I wanted to check in with you on. And I actually hadn't heard that term, slaughterman, slaughterwoman. And, <laughs> and so that's a really good, that's a really good note. Okay. So my question is, this goes into it. So I've been thinking a lot about the role of the person that kills food throughout time. And I think from a historical precedent as hunters and gatherers, and there would have been a group of people, probably typically men, that would have gone out and would have killed the food. And they would have killed, well, no, one, two a day tops, and not every single day. And that there would have been a strong relationship there. And here we are, tens of thousands of years later, and now we just have very few people that hold that role of taking the lives of killing animals and bringing them into the space of food that, and we've hidden it. We've hidden it behind closed doors in these slaughterhouses. And I just think that that evolution is such an interesting one to me because so much of what you said, as you talked about your history is touching these things of putting our hands on our food and we've lost that and we've lost this really 
important piece of it and just relegated it to very few people to hold what I think is a burden at the rate that we're asking these people to hold it. Though I could that's be wrong really, there too. No, I, that's really interesting that you talk about that it used to be maybe one or two animals, you know, every few days or something. And now it's to the point that, you know, we're a very small shop. So we do like for us, 12 beef is a big day. Cause there's three of us max out there at the, at the, you know, most of the time, but yeah, even to see 12 animals die in a day versus one or two a week or whatever. And I think about like in talking about this and in, in being someone that gets to talk about this because it, I'm, I'm in maybe a rare position and with my background, I often have to check myself because I, I know there are a lot of people that do this job that maybe don't, well, that definitely don't necessarily like it and they don't have much of a choice in the matter. And so I, it's like, I feel privileged to be able to do something that I really love to do and, and feel called to do, but I don't want to, I don't want to make it so precious that it overrides the the work that people are doing. I, I mean, the people that are in the big, like JBS plants doing a lot, a lot of animals and are, yeah, I mean, to put that in perspective, JBS plants are going to go through, depending on whether it's beef or lamb or hogs, fifteen to 20,000 animals per day in three shifts. And I, I pulled this that I thought was really interesting. 30 years ago, the highest paid industrial jobs in the United States with one of the lowest turnover rates was working in slaughterhouses. And now that are, it is the lowest paid with some of the highest turnover rates. Interesting. Yeah. And so that's a really important note to highlight that there, there's a discrepancy between some of these smaller shops and some of these big industrial assembly lines. Yeah. You can get really, I mean, like, I don't know that I would call us a boutique shop, but we are, we're small, you know, there's very few of us working there. We, we do, we can, we're, we're doing enough volume that it, it is, you know, helpful to people. And we are getting a lot of meat out of the, it's kind of insane how many animals we can do given how many people work there but just I, yeah the like the big slaughterhouses it blows my mind that it's even physically possible and i don't know that it is i think that's why the turnover is what it is because people are getting hurt they're getting sick like there's a a book by uh, i can't think of his name it's called the chain and it's about pig processing in i think he's talking about the midwest but the communities that get built up there of the people that work there and just the illnesses. I mean, like from there's neurological diseases from having to aerosolize pig brains when they're cleaning out skulls, like all these different things. And it's like, we don't have to worry about any of that. Like I am, we are totally taken care of at the shop and there are people that are really having a rough time that are doing similar work at much higher volumes. And I, I have to keep that in mind when I'm talking about all this because it, it, I am very privileged to work in the situation that I work in. But to your point that about it being hidden now also, the historical aspect of that, I, I was just reading, um, read me, God, there's all these books that I... You're fine. We'll, we'll link them. I'll I, find them. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, I want to say it's Red Meat Nation, I'm pretty sure. And then another one called The Meat Paradox. And both of them look at the history of meat eating but that slaughterhouses on the East Coast, as the cattle industry became a thing, 
that all these cattle were getting shipped from the West and the Midwest to the East Coast. And there were huge slaughterhouses and they were like in Chicago, right? Like the jungle up in Sinclair. And, and there, there's plenty of documentation of that. But in New York, in Chicago, in these cities, and it was like open sewage and all, I mean, God, if you, I know you've smelled plenty of animal guts and especially on a hot day and oh, it can be so nasty. And so that was just in the middle of cities. And finally it, it like they were legislated out of cities. They were forced out of New York, across the water, away from the public. And it was a public health and safety issue at that point. But it, it just, it was the beginning of sort of hiding the, the process, the meat processing industry. And it came from a place of, you know, legit health concerns that now it's so far removed and we are so sheltered from it that it's like, there was a, I wanted to go visit a JBS plant in Arizona and I was trying to figure out kind of who to talk to. And I was reading some interviews with some of the people that run it and they were saying, yes, it's, it were, you know, we shelter the public from this and people see it as being sort of sneaky, but he's like, but people also don't want to see it. So, so what do we do? Do we put this out in the open and just have a slaughterhouse, you know, in downtown Phoenix, or do we hide it because people are upset by it and it smells bad? And, you know, what, where is that happy medium where people are not so sheltered from the situation, but it's also not in everyone's faces all the time because, and, and I don't, I don't know. I think that's a I think that's a really good question because I think that there's a relationship with meat that happens in the grocery store from people that aren't considering this which understandably it, our culture hasn't really raised us to consider this where you get this hermetically sealed pork chop in a in a plastic styrofoam container and it's so far removed from being alive or, or from even containing death. And I, I think that we don't even consider that this was a living being oftentimes. And so to bring that back into consciousness that people maybe don't want, but I think was normal within what it is to be human, like this relationship with life and death in our food. This was something that we would have seen every day, whether we were the hunters or not, because that meat would have been brought back and processed. And I think throughout the history of agriculture, we're raising livestock in our, in our backyards, in our villages and processing them right there, even up until 1930s, 1940s, when most people still had some meat chickens in their backyard that they were processing. And so, death is a part of food. And I wonder at our disconnection from it and, and how we kind of bring that back into focus. Yeah. I mean, well, my, so my great grandmother, my mom's grandmother was a butcher, which I didn't find out until I was kind of already down that path. My mom was like, well, you know, Gladys was a butcher. And I did remember her saying that at some point where she was like, Oh, she'd come home from the, she was a butcher at a grocery store. And she'd come home and her hands were cold from like cutting in the cold room all day and she'd had blood on her. And, and, but she learned that skill on their farm in, I want to say it was in Nebraska. They ended up in California and when they moved, she needed to get a job. And she was like, well, I know how to cut meat, you know? And that was just, it was just a basic skill she had from life, from living <laughs> and from having to know how to do it. So yeah, I, the getting people back in touch with, with food and with, death specifically has kind of become my driving force in 
what I'm trying to do, you know, even being on the kill floor and having friends just come by the shop and come say hi. And I'm like, you should come back and, and see what we're doing. And they're like, oh, I don't know. And especially if it's like a sheep day, cause it's just so mellow. I mean, the sheep are just so chill and Jesse. So Jesse is my boyfriend. He's also the kill floor manager and we met at the shop and he kills most of the animals and it's he or I, and then this other guy, Kyle, but Jesse's usually the one doing it. He's so good at it. And he just like, there'll be a, a cow or anything that is worked up. And the second he lays a hand on it, it just calms down. He's got this very calming demeanor. And so like he'll bring sheep in and they're just hanging out and we have, we use a captive bolt gun. So it's, it is like a kind of a metal tube. I, we always explain it as being like, if you've seen no country for old men and he has the, his is it's a good, yeah. different, but yeah, it's a similar thing. There's no, bullet, yeah, it's right? the it's most, like yeah, the closest thing to, yeah. It extends out the, that the bolt extends out almost like a bullet would, but then it retracts again. Yeah, exactly. It comes out. I want to say, I think it's about six inches and it, it's supposed to stun the animal. It, definitely kills it but the idea is that you stun it and then bleed it but i mean that it's dead but uh, people will come back during sheep days and i'm like it's not it's not going to be as bad as you think it is like i would not tell you to come watch this if i thought it was going to be upsetting to you and they'll come back and they'll see it and they're like huh i'm okay like i'm that was okay you know and talking to people after they see that especially for the first time and i've gotten to do a few field harvest with my friend Matt Skoglin that has a bison ranch, North Bridger Bison. And he is just incredible at what he does. And so he goes out and uh, he he knows which bison he's going to harvest. And he gets really close to it in his truck and the bison don't care. They just kind of hang out and he'll shoot it and it drops. And then having people out there that have never seen it before. And there's something about bison specifically. It's very, like, very primal. <laughs> like it's a very intense it's gorgeous. It's my, it's my absolute favorite thing to do is to watch people experience it for the first time and the emotions and the, the people just can't stop talking about it, you know, like talking through what they're feeling. And it's like, this is so natural. Like, I think people feel a, a catharsis when they get to witness it and be a part of it. And it's like, there's something in your brain that has, that you didn't know you needed this. You didn't know your body and your soul needed this. And then suddenly it's just like, oh, it touches so deep. And it's my favorite thing to see. When you're watching people, do you see do you see any common threads, any universalities as people witness this for the first time? I see people surprised that they're not sad. I, I think people expect that they will cry or or be upset. And instead you see people feel I think it is a catharsis. I think it's a strange sort of, I don't want to say joy, but it's like a, I don't know, it, it's some connection. I don't know if there's a word for it, but instead of feeling sad and feeling bad, it's like, this is okay. At least in the, in the way that we're doing it, you know, cause you're not seeing, it's not, no one's suffering. None of the animals are suffering, but I think people are shocked at how okay they are with the process and the feelings that, that it brings up that they didn't even know they had about death or about food or any of it. I sometimes wonder, I use the word reverence a lot in this, in this situation. It feels like there's a sort of reverence that comes up for people. 
Mm-hmm. And I wonder a lot, you touched on something and I'm curious what your thoughts are. Sometimes I feel like this is missing from our humanity, that this relationship with food and this relationship with death and our food, which it, death is inherent to, to what it is to eat. I feel like there's almost this void in this has shaped our humanity for so long. And when you witness it and you get this chance to see it and to let it unfold and to allow yourself to be present for it, there is just this sort of coming back to, to something that I really do believe is innate to the human spirit, for lack of a better word. Uh, yeah, I think it's something that it, it immediately grounds you. And it's like the thing that everyone is terrified of, right? I mean, the fear of death, I think, drives everything that people do. You know, it's, it's, we're avoiding thinking about it. We're avoiding dying. We're avoiding all these different thoughts and feelings about death. And the second you're allowed to see it and witness it and think about it and feel it, the fear starts to dissipate. And I have noticed just in my own, you know, the last year of, of being on the kill floor, it's at least three days a week. I've gone through, it's, it almost feels like these different stages of grief that there'll be a month where I think like, I don't know how I feel about this anymore. Or I'm having a month where I I'm everything's more intense than it was before. And, but I moved through things. I was thinking about this. I'm so glad that we're talking now than say if it were six months ago or eight months ago, because I feel differently about it now than I did even two months ago. Like I'm, I'm just thinking about it all the time and I'm witnessing it all the time. And so internalizing it for myself and thinking about my friends and my family and my 10 year old dog, you know, it's like, I'm constantly moving through these stages of kind of of grief or just like really internalizing the idea of impermanence. And I think that's something that people don't have the chance to do. And it, it affects how we live. Like I was just in traffic this morning and it was driving me nuts because I, I just, I no longer have patience for things that waste my time because I don't feel like any of us have a lot of time, which is okay. It just is what it is, but I don't have patience to have my time wasted. And I think if a lot of people were more aware of of death itself and had witnessed it a few times, we might put up with a lot less crap. (laughs) You know, I think we would all live our lives a little differently and be happier for it instead of getting wrapped up in a bunch of stuff that doesn't matter. There is so much I want to tease out of there. And the first, the first thing is, do you think that this fear of death is because we don't experience it? Right. And I mean, historically, would there have been as much fear because it would have been present because hunting our food would have been a part of everyday life. It would have just been a fact. Yeah. I think, I think seeing something die and watching it over and over again and watching a lot of animals die in my mind before, you know, when I was younger and I would think about death and I had a lot of friends die uh, in my early twenties. And a lot of it was through skiing. I was deep into the ski scene and which is inherently dangerous. And then there were some overdose deaths and car accidents, you know, it was kind of, it happened all at once. And I really had a reckoning in my early twenties that kind of messed me up for a little while in that I like, I went from feeling like, well, what's the point if we're all going to die? And if, you know, one of the best 
people I know died, like then none of us are safe. I had this whole, it was like this panic and it was like, it's going to happen to everyone. It's going to ha- you know, it's going to happen to me. And I, I think that was when you and I first connected actually on Instagram, because you had said that you will have these moments of being like, everything's going to die. And I, yeah, everything, I call it, everything is dying. It's a, it's a mood I get into. And I call the mood, I call this mood, everything is dying. And I'll think of like a plant I love is going to die and my husband's going to die and my dog is, and I'll, I'll feel this mounting existential anxiety that everything around me is, is in imminent danger of dying. And it, it is, it's really tough anxiety to move through. I still experience it though, less and less as time goes on. Sure. I feel it too. And I like, just you say that I'm like, man, I can easily slip into that because it, cause it's not wrong. I mean, you're not wrong. And that's the hardest part about it where it's like, you can, you have to accept it. You can't like talk it away because it's not, it's not wrong. It is going to happen, but you just have to find a way to deal with it. And I don't know if there actually is a way. It's just something you just have to hold and just, it's not going to feel good. I mean, it's just not, I just don't think it's going to, it's going to feel good, but this idea of witnessing death. And when I would think about dying and the thing that scared me the most was imagining the feeling of slipping from life to death, that, that minute, that second, when it happens, that thought terrified me. And now, you know, I, the part that I dislike the most, whether I'm hunting or even on the till floor, it's that moment right before it happens. It's like a, there's like, I always think of it as being this like thin membrane between this side and that side. And we're so close to it. It's like this bubble that you can reach out and you can't stick your hand through it, but you can just, you know, it's there and you're almost touching it. And then this being is suddenly on that other side. And, and there's this, this split second when it happens that always kind of breaks my heart and then it's done and then it's fine. But it was always that, (laughs) that like middle space before it actually happens that I just, I don't know. I think there's like this little portal that opens and that, that idea always scared me. And now it doesn't scare me. It just is what it is. I'm not, and I'm, I'm not afraid of dying. I'm, (laughs) I like being alive so much. I love, you know, like I just, everything delights me. And so the thought of not being able to like see the stars or smell flowers, like that makes me sad. But the idea of dying and of being dead doesn't scare me. I'm just, I just love being here. I love that. And it, it's funny as you were talking, uh, that membrane, I love that you called it a membrane because it is, and it's, it's tangible. Like you can almost, you could almost, but not quite reach through that space between that liminal space between here and there that is so hard to, it's so hard to quantify in words. But you teased out earlier, you were talking about as you've worked the kill floor, going through these stages of almost grief. And, and then this, this cognizance of death. And I kind of want to tease out those two things because I think about this a lot that one of my biggest fears with <laughs> everything is dying is, is actually not death itself, right? I don't particularly fear death. And, and for me, I think that maybe I become the flowers, maybe I become the stars, but 
<laughs> I fear grief, right? I fear, I fear the weight of grief and what death means, not for myself, but the grief that I might have to endure, that I will have to endure, right? I, that we yeah. all inevitably have to endure. And hearing you talk about going through those stages on the kill floor as you kind of just, it's, it almost feels to me like a reinitiation into death and, and then to, to not have a fear. And there's just something there about how we tease the, these two things apart, because I think that they're part of one another, but they are not, they're not the same. Yeah. I think you hit it spot on the fear of grief. And I, <laughs> I partway through, I want to say it was, it must've been around in August. Cause that's my dog's birthday. She turned 10 and that day on the kill floor was really hard for me because I'm so glad that my dog is 10 years old. She's totally healthy, but she's my, my little being, you know, like she's been with me for a decade. I, we are the same creature. She's, you know, no one knows me like my dog knows me. And she just, I, I just can't even like, sometimes I can't even talk about her cause it's just like, I get overwhelmed. But that day on the kill floor was really tough because I was so close to the thing that I'm terrified about with her. And I think about Jesse, my boyfriend, who I just am head over heels in love with that. Like the idea that he won't exist someday just is most of the time more than I can deal with, you know, like it just, there's no choice in the matter. It's going to happen. My parents, myself, you know, it's like that. What is it, the flaming lips song that, Oh God, it's just, <laughs> that, do you realize that everyone, you know, and love will not like, yeah, I do realize that. I think about it probably too much, you know, but I also, I think that feeling, that fear of grief, which I have a hard time getting away from. And it does, it gets to me at times. It also has made me not necessarily a nicer person. I think I have less capacity for people's crap, but I am a kinder person and I am more committed to the relationships that I care about because they are so fleeting, no matter how long, you know, if it, whether it's an 80 year relationship or, or eight months or whatever, it's like the people that I care about, there's just not much else that matters to me. And, you know, that deeply and, and my pets and even the animals that come through the door, it's like, everything is much more intense. And I don't know, I just, <laughs> every, <laughs> I'm, I'm much more committed to being kind and feeling intensely, all those feelings and getting rid of all the, the bullshit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I do think it works as this motivator. I, want to ask you, and I don't think there's a good word for it. So I'm going to, I wonder this about myself and hearing you speak. I wonder this about you too. And I don't want to, I don't want to mislabel you sensitive. This isn't my favorite word, but for lack of a better one, why <laughs> people like us that are so prone to this fear of grief and the feeling, feeling a little bit more sensitive in this space would be attracted to this. <laughs> Yeah, I wonder that a lot. And I, I think part of that, like, in my early 20s, when I had a lot of friends that were dying, fear, like, death was so mysterious to me. And so I, I needed to, like, learn more about it. It was, a, it's, I'm a control freak. So it was a control thing, right? Where it was like, yeah, it's like, if I can learn more about it, maybe I can control <laughs> some aspect of it. And then the more, you know, the more, you know, you're out of control, but maybe 
we need that. We need to like have it served to us that like, no, there's nothing you can do at, after a certain point, you know, like there you're, you have to relinquish control over this thing. And I think, I wonder sometimes if it's, if it's good or bad or what sort of coping mechanism it is that I'm employing by being on the kill floor, if that is me trying to have some, some control over this process and over my feelings about it. And I, one thing I've noticed like in my fear of grief or, or this, like this feeling of not being in control and witnessing death all the time is that for me and thinking about my dog and my parents and myself, like if I can be in control of my own health, you know, like I go to the doctor and I get everything checked up and that lets me relinquish some of the anxiety that I have about not dying, but just not being here and like taking my dog to the vet and getting her checked up. And when they're like, yeah, she's totally fine. I I am able to let go of a little bit of the anxiety and my need for control because I've done everything I can right at that point. Like there's not, there's nothing else I can do, but yeah, I think the sensitivity and I know like, <laughs> I know Jesse, I know my parents would say that I'm a highly sensitive person and things get to me pretty deeply. I'm, I think I'm very empathetic and I have a very hard time with, I don't think life should be fair, but I have a hard time with injustice. And so there, it's just like, I'm constantly, I literally, I truly believe I can save the world. That's like this deep held belief that I'm like, I can do it. I can do something. And I, I, that's why I, I mean, that's kind of like what runs my life is this idea that like I can have some, some positive impact. And for me right now, that's, that's witnessing death. And it is, I do have some control over it, right? Like I, none of the animals that we kill suffer even the slightest, the slightest. And so that is my, (laughs) that's me having control over some aspect of this whole scenario. And yeah, I don't, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's helping or hindering me, but it's the only thing I want to do these days. (laughs) I think it's a process, right? I mean, whether it's helping or hindering, I think it's just a process that I know for myself that I am choosing, right? This is something that I am choosing because I'm trying to work something out for me. And, and whether it's making, uh, whether it's making my own control issues better or worse or worse in the short term and better in the long run, (laughs) I I don't know, but it it is, it is definitely a process that I feel called to go on. Yeah. Do you think, I mean, do you feel that, that like being closer to it is somehow, I don't know if, if catharsis is a word, but it's some you have to think about it less because you're doing it more or you're there's less thinking and more doing. There's more, uh, I don't know. I don't know what it is, but the thing you're afraid of, you run toward. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think that's part of it. And I think for me, there was this desire to just get closer and closer. Like how close can I get to my food? That, that was really my motivating piece at first. And you know, okay, so I'll become a butcher. Well, that's not close enough. I want to be a farmer and I want to be killing all of my own meat. I want to be closer and closer and closer. And when you talked about it being an aspect of control, that that is absolutely part of what's going on is that I want to have some semblance of control over this thing. I also, as somebody who's curious, I want to understand it better. Like maybe if I maybe if I understand 
death a little bit better and not that anyone ever could fully understand it. Right. But to witness it, to see it, to, to be the, the executioner of it, maybe I can touch something that will help me. It'll help illuminate this piece, or it's just this desire to constantly touch that membrane, maybe because, because it hurts. <laughs> and I don't have a better, <laughs> I don't have a better, I know that that sounds a little tough, but I also think I'm exploring that space in myself that, that hurts that space where I'm afraid of grief. And I think farming has added a layer to that of having a relationship with these animals and experiencing their lives from birth all the way to death and experiencing grief in conjunction with joy at filling my freezer and nourishing me and my family and trying to tease out that space. And I think one of the things that this has taught me is that grief is, grief is only half of it, that the more, the more I let myself experience this thing that I'm afraid of experiencing, the more connection I can experience on the other side. Like it's a seesaw somehow. Yeah. Yeah. And it's that holding low... the two. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> oh no. Just I, the, holding those two very different things at the exact same time. I, I felt that way when I hunted for the first time and I shot my first deer and I walked up to it and I thought I would be emotional and I, I wasn't at least at first. And I didn't feel, I, I wrote about it later and I, I wrote, I didn't feel bad because it's what I wanted. Like I couldn't feel bad about it because it was, I didn't, I didn't feel a joy. I just, it was what I wanted. And I, so why would I feel bad about it? You know, I, it's like, what is, what other word can we use I, language is huge. I, I, it's like I, I lose the ability to d- start describing what it is I feel. And, but being able to hold those two, the gratitude for it, but in a larger sense, because I, I have a really hard time with the idea that like, oh, I'm grateful to this animal because it didn't choose to die. I killed it, right? Like I'm, I'm grateful that I was able to do that and that this animal existed and that I will be fed by it. But I don't think it's fair for me to be grateful to the animal specifically because it, if it had a choice, it, it, that wouldn't have happened, right? So how do I stay, how do I hold gratitude and also, I don't even know what other word it is for, you know, doing something that you don't necessarily feel bad about, but it's this in-between, this in-between feeling of, of necessity. Uh, yeah, I, it feels necessary. I to think me. necessity I mean, that, is an it, important piece of it. Yeah, we have to yeah. feed ourselves. We have to, and we've part lost of the, touch with that in in modern grocery stores. But we have to feed ourselves. Yes, and I think part of in in looking at you know the, the if you want to talk about talk about the ethics of me eating, and even that word I think is very loaded, and I have a hard time using the word ethical because it's like well, I do too. My ethics, right? Like they're not the same as someone else's, especially when it comes to religion and when it comes to people's economic choices and what they can and can't do. Like it's not my place to say that someone's unethical because they can't afford something or don't know any better or have so much other stuff that they have to worry about that like where their meat comes from, 
is uh, so it, so it's in my mind it's unethical to ask people to do something that is so outside their realm of of control or being able you know they have all these other things they have to take care of and so people need to eat and if people need to eat meat that comes from a grocery store because they have to nourish themselves like that is the ethical thing that you're doing by taking care of yourself. We need to, if we're going to talk about ethical meat we ha- or, or just food systems, we have to take into account the fact that like people being allowed and able to eat what is best for them is also ethical. And that might not be totally in line with like buying it from a farmer's market or whatever, but like people matter too. And, and so that has to be taken into account outside of just the, the farm or the processing or whatever it is. Like we're animals too. We are natural beings. We are natural creatures. We're allowed to be here. Like we are not this scourge on the earth. We're not this like terrible plague. And for me, when I was starting culinary school, I took a random class up at the college and it was like a, I don't know, sustainable food systems class. And at that point I was feeling discouraged and I was, I I didn't feel like it felt to me like the only way that I could help the planet would the best way would be to not be here. Like if I wasn't here, that, that would be the best alternative. Like that's the, that's the best case scenario because me being here is bad. And that was the messaging that I was getting. And I think that's the message that a lot of, I think that's a message we all get that it's bad that we're here and it's negative. And it's just, we are as natural as that tree growing out there. We're as natural as that bear that wandered through my backyard, you know, like, but we've somehow, we've managed to separate ourselves to the point that like, we feel unnatural here. We feel like we're bad. And so then we remove ourselves from even being considered as like animals and beings who also deserve to be treated ethically and to, to take care of ourselves and take care of each other. I love that you tangent, but <laughs> no, I love that you touched on that because I think that I've done a couple of podcasts where we're kind of beating around this and I love this topic. I think it's so important. And I think that the way our language in many ways to go back to that has framed this is when we talk about the environment, we are talking about, right? Something other than, than us. It's the thing that is outside of human, but we are yeah. a part of that environment. We are just a, a cog in that, in that whole machine and just a piece of that, you know, nature isn't out there. It's right here too. And I think that that idea that we are a scourge and a blight on the earth, I think that it's insidious in a lot of ways that, that it really changes our relationship. And I think it internalizes a lot of self-loathing in a sort of way of, of what it is to be human and how we relate to things. And then that trickles down into this idea of, well, there's ethical, which implies that there's also unethical and there's good meat, which means that there's, there's also bad meat and, you know, there's clean food, which means there's also dirty food. Yeah. And we're missing a lot of the spectrum of being human in that. And it really, cause I, I want that. I just want people to be nourished, if, you know? And if that means eating some steaks from Costco, from wherever, good, good. Yeah. We're, we're, yeah, that's great. <laughs> that's important. And yeah, people matter. And I, I, this is, I think this is a really important thing and something I want to talk about 
specifically because I think that you're in a space where we talk a lot about the animals and we talk a lot about animal welfare in, in slaughterhouses, but we don't talk a lot about human welfare and the people. Yeah. And yes, <laughs> I am. This is like a topic that's very close to my heart right now, just being, you know, working where I work and having the frustrations that I do, and then imagining the frustrations of people that aren't, like we were talking about earlier, that, that aren't working a job that they enjoy. You know, I get frustrated and I, and I like what I do. So I can't imagine the frustrations and the, you know, I, I don't know what work conditions are like in other places. I can't imagine that they're great, especially in the, in the big ones. And based on what I've read and, and seen, that seems to be true. But especially at like, especially if people are worried about animal welfare, which I am, I, part of why I love this job is I love the animals. I get to go out there every day and hang out with sheep or pigs or cows. And if it's one of my favorite things and I go out there and I talk to them and I hang out and sometimes they're not down to hang out. And sometimes, you know, they're <laughs> a little bit friendlier and they want to hang out with you, but it's like, I just, I really like being around animals and I, I care about them so much. And I'm so concerned about, you know, their, their transition, the, the, the moment of death is something that I am, I want it to be as easy as possible. And we all do at the shop, Jesse, Kyle, Ryan, everyone that works over there is like, that's our number one priority. But we're able to do that because we're able to take care of ourselves too, right? It's it's like the the oxygen mask on an airplane. That's how I always think of it. Like they're like, put your mask on first and then help someone else. Like if you don't have your oxygen mask, if you can't help yourself first, you're not going to be able to help anyone else. And so, if people are working in meat processing facilities and they can hardly take care of themselves and their families, they're probably not going to be able to extend a lot of empathy to the animals that they're killing. And that, that, that's just, it's not any, you know, judgment on no. them, but it's just, a fact. It's, just, it's just a fact. And if you don't have people that are trained well, and you don't have people that are taken care of and that, and that care about the industry, you know, cause there are a lot of people that really care about the animals and the whole industry, but they're not, they're not getting jobs killing animals. You know, like if you care, go work in a slaughterhouse, go kill those animals because that is the groundwork like that. <laughs> that's like, that's yeah. it. Yeah. And so if you, if, if, if the people that are doing it don't have that same impetus, which I totally get, I was listening to a podcast, the meat block podcast, which those guys are hilarious. And they're basically doing the exact same job that I do. And sometimes I feel like they're in my head when they're talking about stuff, but the talking about like, you just, if people aren't trained well and they, they aren't happy in their job that they can't do it well. And that obviously like that, that just should be so obvious. And yet we treat meat production workers like they're disposable because a lot of the people that get hired at places like that are, are not viewed as being like fully human. It's so nuts. And then we expect all these things. Everyone is being set up for failure as far as I'm concerned. You know, like if, if we're not looking for success in terms of, just how human beings are treated it, then you have failed from the very start and the rest of the line is going to be screwed up too. Yeah. There is, there is no environmental sustainability without there also being human sustainability because we are a part of that. And I like, yeah, the, the environmental side, the economic side and the societal side of it, right? Like all three, there's, 
if one of those pieces of the of the stool, if it's a three legged stool, if one piece isn't there, the whole thing can't stand. And yeah, yeah. And this job is it's the most dangerous job in America to work on a kill floor is OSHA. Uh, yeah, I, I forget what OSHA stands for right now. Should know this. Um, it, you know, it's the most dangerous <laughs> job in America. It's hard on your body. It's incredibly, I only know this from the butcher side, but I mean, both my husband and I, after 10 years of doing this have permanent repetitive motion injuries that I, and, and we didn't go through anything even remotely close to the scale that a lot of, of people on a, on a, kill floor and then in a, basically an assembly line where they're making the same cut thousands of times per day on this sort of conveyor belt of butchering. Yeah. It's not and even, it's not even stop. the diversified movement of animals and they can't stop. It is just going and they are supposed to act like a machine and they're incredibly low paid and we have hidden this entire thing. We don't, celebrate this position. Like you said, it's not one of those that like, if you care about this, go, go do it. Yeah. I mean, I was talking to the, a guy came in a couple days ago, um, and was watching us skin out a bison and he was a, did some tech stuff and he worked for a startup that, you know, uh, it was about, it was really interesting. Actually, he was talking about working with regenerative farms or trying to get capital for people to start these farms. And it, it was really interesting. I'm like, I'm glad there are people that are out there doing that because in the economic system that we have created, that's now necessary, but still like that's the, that's the end of the line in my, in my view, where it's like, if we're worried about this, we can't keep talking about it. We're not going to fix it with tech. We're not going to fix it with we can't use the tools that we broke it with to then fix it. So yes. unless you're worrying about people and you're worrying about the day-to-day operations and if people are taken care of, there's just, I mean, you're putting a bandaid on just a open wound that's getting worse and worse and worse. You're fixing a symptom. You're not fixing the problem. Do you have an idea of how we begin to look at this, uh, like of how you would approach it. I know it's a massive problem and I don't want to downplay that, but I'm just curious what your thoughts are from your perspective, having, having worked in that space to some degree. I mean, I think I, I kind of think of it the way that I think about how the restaurant industry changed in the last say 30, 40 years where you went from chefs and and line cooks as being just like menial labor and no one really cared what they had to say or, or what they were doing back there to now being a chef is a big deal, right? Like that's the cool job and being a line cook is kind of badass and whatever. And, and, but it, it took recognition by the public that they're hard jobs and that it's skilled labor and it took education. You know, I like, I went to culinary school. I, there are a lot of people that I went to culinary school with that have moved on to take really cool positions in the industry and are highly educated in not only, you know, food preparation, but management and labor laws and all that. And so I think in, in this instance, education is going to be huge and and not just educating people that are going to be doing the job, but educating the public about what these jobs are, why they're so important and making it instead of having it be, be a, people think it's low skill labor. And so it doesn't get paid like it should. And it's not viewed the way it should be viewed as high skilled, very important labor. And 
I think educating people about food systems and like the workers themselves, right? Like I talk to people that I work with and they just, for some of them, it's just a job and that's fine. Like that's fine. But the more that everyone that works at the shop knows about food systems and about, you know, meat production and the whole gamut of everything, I see them changing how they work and what time they show up. And then they get to talk to customers and they're talking to each other and they're, then they ask more questions. You know, it's like understanding there's always going to be people that do it as just a job. But if we can get more people in the industry that are committed from a deeper level, you know, from the level of like, we need systemic change and maybe my role in it can be the way the animal dies or the way that it's processed or whatever. I th- I think that education piece is huge. And for me, I, you know, I, right before COVID, I was trying to start my own business forage fed. And my reasoning behind that was education, because I think that there are people, especially women, and I try not to focus too much on, on the gender side of things. Cause I, I'm not super interested in that. Although I do see it as being, <laughs> you know, uh, I've just, I understand just that. I've been that asked so many times, it. like, what are your thoughts on being a woman in this industry? And I'm like, ah, I don't have that many. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I don't know any different. I've never, this is all I've ever been in this uh-huh. industry. So what's it like being a man? Like, I don't, I don't, I don't know. know. I, this is like I there's some things that I need some help lifting that's about it Mm -hmm. you know I Mm -hmm. I, yeah I I don't I don't think that hard about it and I also don't I don't think that hard about being a woman in general I just am what I am and it's not something that has ever like I've been very privileged to not have it define what I do I kind of plow ahead and do whatever I'm going to do anyway (laughs) and I don't care what anyone thinks and so uh, yeah, the, the gender side of things, I, I get that it is an issue. Like I'm, I'm very, very aware because people come in to the shop and they will defer to all the guys working there instead of oh, ever yeah. asking me a question. And you're like, oh, yeah. yeah, no, I, yep. I'm an idiot. Why would I know anything? Yeah. Like I'm not why also would I, covered why in Why would blood. I know anything about me? <laughs> yep. Oh yeah. I, yeah. I had, yeah. I used to have that happen. You know, I own the butcher shop and the guy I was training next to me that look at him to ask the question. Yeah. You're like, no, that I'm the one. Hi. <laughs> yeah. But I the education piece to me is that was that's that's where I want to go from here is talking about slaughter and butchery and meat processing in a different light as a, a skill and an art rather than menial labor, because it's not, no matter if you're working at JBS or anywhere, I don't care. And turning it into something that people see as being highly valuable or understanding that it is highly valuable because it it just is. I love that you're saying this because I think that this is part of the transformation that the restaurant industry went through. And I think you m- mentioned Kitchen Confidential in, in our pre-interview uh, mm-hmm. list. And I think that's really interesting because I think some of what Anthony Bourdain and other chefs did was they kind of peeled back this curtain on what it was to work in a kitchen for the general lay person that was going to restaurants and said, Hey, you know, here's an invitation to get a little bit curious about what happens in this world. And I think that invitation was, was taken 
And there became a lot of curiosity about what it meant to work on the line and to see, you know, and I think we see this in like reality TV shows based on chefs and all of that. But for years, my husband and I have said one of the best things that could happen is if we were wearing hats and T-shirts repping our local slaughterhouse and and getting curious about that <laughs> process, right? That we do it, uh-huh. we do it for farms and we do it for restaurants, but we miss this incredibly critical piece that you you said, and I loved this, where you're turning the hard work of farmers into food. And I don't think any step of the process could be more transformative or more important. Mm-hmm. And it's turned into like that, that point where we have a lot more transparency on the farm side, right? Like, especially with small farms like yours and, and, and places where people can, can go touch the animals and see what's going on. And and there's so much discussion about different types of farming and, and, you know, if it's scalable and like the discussion is just massive. And so it's the transparency is, is great now. And on the food side, the, you know, like I was cooking at a restaurant in town and we would serve the pork chops from the animals that I had killed two days ago, you know, or whatever, two weeks ago or whatever. It was like, oh yeah, I watched this animal die and I skinned it and gutted it. And now I'm at work and I'm serving it over, you know? Yeah. And it was like, so that transparency is there. Right. And people come in and they're like, oh, it's, you know, black dog or Amalthea, some of the local farms around here and people know who they are and, and they eat their food. But it's like this hourglass where this pinch point is at slaughter and it's still this mystery and it's been so cool being in this community and I'm in Bozeman where I, I was so uh, disenfranchised with local food for a while because it felt so privileged for a long time. It felt like, okay, well, all the farmer's markets are on the rich side of town and they're at weird times when like, why would anyone that's working a normal job be able to go to a farmer's market at 3 p.m. on a Thursday on the West side, right? Like <laughs> what? I, I understand who these farmer's markets are for. And it's not for these other people. And I was kind of over it. I was like, this all seems like some BS and it seems unattainable and it's not going to be the solution if this is how it's going to go. But now in Montana, at least where I, Southwest Montana, it, the local food scene is so robust and it's so egalitarian. <laughs> like there's just, I mean, you find local food at every grocery store. It doesn't matter if you go to the co-op. It doesn't matter if you go to, you know, TNC, which is the more local, small grocery store. And you see the farmers out at dinner in town and the farmer's market is Saturday morning, which is pretty reasonable as far as I'm concerned. And, and it's in the middle of town and, and now getting to like be at on the kill floor and at 7am, all these people, all these farmers show up and, I know that I'm going to see, you know, this pig on a plate in three weeks or whatever at the restaurant and having friends that are raising animals for the first time. Like I have a friend that has, she just raised pigs this year for the first time and she dropped them off last Friday. And it was so, it's so cool to see people doing this and getting into it. And for them to know that I'm there and that Jesse's there and that these animals that they raised are being dropped off into the hands of normal people that are just like very concerned about this industry and love these animals and like talking to farmers and like talking to customers. And it's like, God, if this could be a thing everywhere where you 
you follow your local solder man or solder woman on Instagram and you can see what they're doing. And I, like, that's, that's the dream, right? Where it's like, there are local slaughter plants or small places where the slaughter facility and the slaughter process is as transparent and as integral as the farm and the, the cool restaurant downtown. Yeah. And it's nothing new because that, that is historically how it worked. It, that, that was the situation and animals yeah. were hung outside of the butcher shop, you know, window and you could just kind of interact with all of that. And I think that that return, right. it requires a lot of different things. And I loved that imagery of the hourglass that there's this pinch point here. And I think that pinch point is being felt. We don't have as many small slaughterhouses as we did 50 years yep. ago where they're in every community and you can have kind of have that flow through out from that space back into the community where you're creating a real ecosystem for farmers slaughterhouse restaurants food to cohabitate together where right. where you're keeping money in the economy and you're creating community. You're creating a lot of support. I think it's, it's really important. Yeah. The money staying in the local economy is something that I talk about and think about all the time because I'm not like, I'm terrible at math economics. You know, the math side of it is not, I don't even, I'll never understand it, but I understand slightly the social side of economics. And in my mind, economics is, a human behavior problem, right? And it's like, we look at it as if it's this monolithic thing that we don't have control over when really it's just people making daily choices. And the economics of small towns and of keeping money in communities is what is going to save everyone, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, like, there, there's a, I want to say it's outside of London. There's a community that they do, I think it's Brixton? They do bricks and bucks. And so you you can spend and and take this money, but it only works in this small community, right? Like you all the shops use it and you can spend it as currency, but there's no reason to hoard it. There's no reason to have a bunch of it because you can't spend it anywhere else. So it it creates this constant movement of money within the community that is valuable in that place and you can buy things with it. But there's no impetus to get rich. You can't get rich because it doesn't actually matter anywhere else. And so if we like when you go to Walmart, like, again, this is where it gets complicated because some people that is where they can shop. That's fine. Like, I don't mean to make a judgment. People are not being set up, set up for success is a problem because people are they only have a certain number of choices and then they're judged on those choices when really it's a massive problem of being set up for failure. And yes, it's places systemic. like Walmart. It's not at the yes. level of the individual. It's a systemic issue. But and I and I think from that we're speaking to this from those of us that do have that choice. Yeah. And yeah, I mean it's like I have the choice that like I haven't my friend was asking me the other day, she was like, Where when was the last time you bought meat from a grocery store? And I was like, I uh, can't even ballpark can't yeah. even i don't need i don't can't remember. I don't remember you know can't remember like almost everything i eat is something that i either killed or watched die and then touched from that point on that's i'm in a very rare situation right and i totally get that 
And I don't, I don't blame anyone else for their choices because it's not, it's like, we're not being set up for success. And so when money is leaving the community, when it goes through corporations like Walmart or Winco or whatever, and everyone's like, Oh my God, did you see how cheap this meat is? And I just want to scream because it's like, it's, it's unrealistically cheap. And the money that you just spent is now gone. It's not going to help anyone around here. I don't know what we're supposed to do about that. You know, I mean, unless there are sweeping changes in economic and like farm policy, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, it's, I, that's where I start to get. I think it gets really difficult because the price of that meat is artificially suppressed by subsidies and by the way that the corporate organism works. And so yeah. here on the other side of things, we have something where, and I think because this is equally important, that farmers are often working on 1% to 2% margins with good practices. They need to raise mm-hmm. the prices of their meat in order to to find financial sustainability, yeah. which makes it more inaccessible. And, uh, and then you get, you get into these really difficult feedback loops that I think that the only... The only thing that begins to move the dial, and, and if you have different thoughts, please chime in, is volume. That we just have to get, we have to get more small slaughterhouses going. There has to be more mm-hmm. small farms. There has to be more options to spend within the community at, at different levels, right? Different levels of engagement and buy-in for whoever can at those times and just need more. Yeah. Yes. From the slaughterhouse side of it, like our biggest issue right now, I mean, we can't find anyone to hire. It's pretty tough. And we are in Bozeman, cost of living super high. You know, I mean, it's hard to compete with some of the wages of like remote work. So that is becoming a problem because people can work from their computers and make a lot of money. And why would you go stand on a kill floor? It was five degrees on a kill floor yesterday. You know, like it's freezing. (laughs) It's hard work. And so you have to have people that are highly motivated to do it. And that's hard to find unless uh, the education piece has to be years long and people have to be invested in it because education doesn't work on its own. There has to be experiences that cause people to change the way they're doing things and that maybe cause someone to leave a so like North Bridger Bison, Matt Scoglin. He's just awesome. I, I You should talk to him at some point because he's just one of the best. He, uh, he was a lawyer and he, after years of doing, I think he was doing like environmental law. He finally was like, okay, what I need to do is start a bison ranch. And he made massive changes. Like they were living in town. Now they live out way out there on the bison ranch and he, huge sacrifices, but he was so called to do that. And he is so committed to what he believes that he like, he was out there. What was that Tuesday in the driving snow, shooting a bison and driving an hour to our shop. And it's like, he kicks his own butt every day, but it takes years of learning and experiencing all these issues to finally get people to make that change. And I know that it was the same for me. And, you know, it took me years before I figured out from, from when I started culinary school to the point that I'm at now, which is eight or nine years, it, like, that was, it's almost a decade for me to get to this point. And it is a commitment still. Like I drive a long way to work and I could probably make more money doing something else, but 
I can't do anything else at this point. I, I, I don't know what else I would do. It's also, and I want to highlight this because you're, you're out there doing what he's doing. You were working in, you said five or 10 degree (laughs) kill floor. Um, (laughs) It takes a commitment to being uncomfortable farming, Uh, working a kill floor. These are, and I'm just talking about physical discomfort, but I mean, there's also emotional discomfort and, and Mm -hmm. it takes a willingness to go into that in a society where I think we've really eschewed the natural state of discomfort that, that we are at the peak of comfort in human history. We are (laughs) in temperature controlled, even, even, I mean, pretty much across the board, we're in temperature controlled spaces with access to refrigeration and experience less physical exertion and discomfort. And so I think that some of these jobs that require that they're physical, they're cold, they, they ask a lot of you. They ask you to wield a knife all the time. I think that they can feel, they can feel like a big leap for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And and I think it's a, like, I don't expect everyone to want to do this. That's insane. It's like, it's not a thing, but there are going to be people that back to the the idea of, you know, educating women about this, whether that's like the goal of what I'm doing or not is I think I talked to a lot of women who would never imagine themselves on a kill floor, even if they wanted to, right. It's like the way that it's portrayed, whether it's on social media or just the way that we talk about it, it's like a big burly dude's job. And why would a girl ever have the chance to be on a kill floor. And I got, I did get super lucky at the, at the shop where I work because the manager at the time understood why I was there and what I wanted to do. And he kind of, you know, pushed me out there and, and helped me get trained pretty quickly. And I don't know that that would have been the case at a lot of other shops, but I think that being, you know, yourself included being someone, being a woman in this space, it's like, Oh, well, there's a, a woman doing that, you know, like maybe it's not so crazy to think that I could go cut meat or go be on a kill floor or have a kill truck or have my own farm, my own small farm. You know, it's like, it sucks that it takes needing to see someone doing it. And I don't know any other women that work on kill floors. And I wish I did, you know, I would love to talk to other women that are doing slaughter because I follow there, somebody like, on Instagram I should connect you with. And she's great. She's in yeah. Arizona. Really? Yeah. I would love that because yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm out there being like, am I, I'm struggling with this because I'm five foot five, you know, I'm like not a large person and that I do work with guys that are pretty big and very strong. And so it's like trying to, it is different. It, it's harder. It's, it's gotta be harder <laughs> because there are yeah. things that I just can't do or I have to, I have learned how to pretend I'm stronger than I'm, I am. Uh-huh. So I'll oh, sit yeah. there and I'm like trying to lift a, lamb carcass onto the hook trolley and I'm like I can't do it uh-huh. and then I have to turn my brain off and I'm like well I have to do it and then somehow it's like yeah. you talk you know they talk about mom strength where it's like something happens and I just you just have to do it and you do it and you're like oh shit okay all right I can do that I but, did that and, yeah no I think <laughs> that's, that's really that important we've trained I don't know how many butchers we've trained over the last decade probably 60 plus and there are some big differences for women and men in just the sort of workarounds for that physical labor. And I have this, mm-hmm. I have this running kind of joke that 
women when they butcher are pushers and men are pullers, which I could only, like, I like to get underneath something and kind (laughs) of like, as I'm butchering and kind of like cut while I'm pushing up, but my husband will pull while, while cutting across it. I don't, it, it makes sense if you're doing a brisket. I don't know. Anyway. I know, I know exactly. (laughs) You end up using like my Ryan, who is our manager and he's a, a really big, strong guy. And I was, we have to push, uh, trash cans full of hides and guts and feet, and they are so heavy. And when I started, I couldn't move one. And now I have to push them around all the time. But he was like, do you remember when you couldn't move one of these things? I was like, yeah. And I said, I don't think I've gotten like my muscles are not that much bigger. I definitely have gained muscle. And, but I said, it's, I don't use muscle like the boys do. I use like my tendons and my connective tissues where I am, I'm pulling and pushing on things rather than using brute force. <laughs> so Me it's too. like when I'm moving, cause I have to use, I, yeah, like I move thousands of pounds of beef carcasses every morning to clean out coolers and get more stuff in. And I'm, you know, like there's a thousand pound bowl and he's cut into quarters. So each quarter weighs almost twice what I do. And I'm trying to push it down the rail but instead of pushing. I have to like leverage my weight against the weight of the carcass and know where all the bumps are on the rail so that it doesn't, you know, go flying off or whatever, but it just takes time. It's not impossible. I mean, you could be a lot smaller than I am and do the same job. I, I know for a fact. It just oh, takes yeah. The best butcher we had, uh, her name is Janice. She runs the Meat Hook in Brooklyn now. But I think Janice oh, yeah. is five yeah. one, and she may be, I mean, she's teeny tiny, right? Um, yeah. And I think actually in some ways gave her some advantages in lifting things at times. But I mean, this is accessible for a wide variety Absolutely. of people. And one of the things I wanted to highlight too is you do such a good job of showing it. And you said this, in order to draw people in, we have to create not just transparency, but curiosity. And on your Instagram, you show what it looks like on a daily basis. And I think that even, and and that might sound, maybe, I don't know how it sounds to you. It might sound simple, but I think that we don't see this and we don't see what happens. And so just by your sharing that, sharing skinning, sharing, you know, a, a full, a full belly of grass and how you, you've asked <laughs> everyone to please, please don't feed the animals before you bring them in. Um, <laughs> whatever that is, you're illuminating this process for people that have not even begun to fathom what it might look like. Mm-hmm. And that is big and really important work. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for recognizing that because I try to be very intentional about it because I'm, I'm sensitive. I, I care about the animals. So I'm sensitive to how they're portrayed just for the fact of like their own autonomy sort of. So I have kind of rules about what I will and won't take photos of, or like I, I won't film slaughter. I won't film, film the killing process. If you, if people want to be there, by all means, come watch That's it, but thing. I'm not going to put that. Yeah. I'm not going to put that on, on social media. That's just not, it's not fair to the animal. And I, yeah, it's, I but I try to be, yeah, I, try, there's just some rules that I've set for myself. Like I don't, we cut the heads off. I don't feel like, I don't have any interest in taking a picture of the head like that. It just feels ex- like 
exploitative. I don't, I don't know. It it's a personal thing. No, I, I know what you, you mean. know. Everyone yeah. else. No, I agree. Yeah. I agree. And I know what you mean. It feels, uh, feels intimate. It, 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 it's yes. protective. You're protecting something. Exactly. I mean, I think about like when in medical school, school, when they dissect cadavers, they'll often cover up the hands because hands are so intimate and so personal. And they're just, yeah, there's just, it's a respect thing. And so, so I try to be intentional about that. And I, I want to show as much as I can within these boundaries that I've set. And so, yeah, I like, I love taking, I love I love skinning animals. I, I love skinning animals. Yeah, and Jesse, I do too. <laughs> it's God, there's just something so satisfying. About is, it. It's really cathartic too. I don't it know. There's, yeah. There's a rhythm to it. Yes. Yes. And you get better at it and you're like, Oh my God, I can't believe I just like, you know, was able to cut that without cutting this other piece or whatever. And you get faster. And it's like, it's a, it's, it's one of my favorite things. And we have, you know, people come in there and they're like, you know, you could just get an air skinner or a blah, 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 or just tear it off. And all of us to a tear, like, if you do that, we're going to quit. Cause like skinning is, you know, all of our favorite parts. And Jesse, my boyfriend is a knife maker. So he makes all the knives that we use on the kill floor. So I wanted it's to like, touch on this. So dive oh in. God, Cause this awesome. was on my, I want to make sure that <laughs> Jesse and it's vigilante forge, right? Yep. Yeah. yeah gets his due. I, I, my husband yeah. and I both have a, those little knives, those skinning knives he makes. And the, I don't know what y'all call that little one, but that is on my list. Yeah. He's got one. He, so it's called a Pakal and it's like a little, it looks like a talon sort of. Mm-hmm. And for like removing feet, cause it mm-hmm. just, it, it, it's like anatomically where you're like, oh yeah, a bird or it's like a claw. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you get in there you pop the feet off. It opens the carcass up. And his knives are incredible. They're and it's gorgeous. so fun because they, yeah, he is an artist for yeah. sure. And he is so creative and he comes up with all these different designs and he'll come up with something nuts and he's like, I'm going to skin with this sprout. You're like, yeah, right. And I mean, he's so talented at what he does and he's so, he's so good at every job he does. And he comes in and you're like, how did you skin that huge beef with that like tiny weird little thing that you made? It's, it's so fun. But we, we have fun. I mean, we are constantly having fun out there and I love working with Jesse and I love working with Kyle and Ryan. And it's like, you know, we're messing with each other constantly. We take the job seriously because we care about the animals and we care about the customers, the producers and everyone, but we're having so much fun. And I want people to see that, that it's like, we're laughing most of the time and giving each other a hard time and, you know, throwing things at each other and whatever. But (laughs) we, uh, I want, I want to show that to people that like, this is not probably what you expect on a kill floor and there, this is a skill and an art. And it's also like one of my favorite places I've ever worked. And I love the people that work here. And this is a kill floor. Like this is, this is my version of a kill floor. And this is what I think a lot of places could be if we can foster a different understanding of of what slaughter means and and meat processing in general. Which again, requires this level of education of the consumer yeah of this is this is what it looks like and inviting people into that space and so i'm just i'm so grateful and i was i was reading the forage fed website and you said something that i love that we have to build a more visceral connection to our food sources and to foster a reimagining of our place in the food system and I think that's so much of what you're doing just intrinsically by the way that you put yourself into the space. But I wonder, and I was struck by it, I think, because there was this visceral, right? And I was thinking of viscera. (laughs) I was thinking of gutting and, and Mm -hmm. 
then I was also thinking of our guts and all of the microbes in our guts, which is something else I want to get into. Um, <laughs> and how much, how much that matters, how much this visceral connection, right? That, that we are tied to this in, in even the bacteria that populates our bodies, like they are coming from this space too, like, and, and our intuition and our, what it is to be human, like it is a visceral connection. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I think even like gutting animals and seeing, you know, so gutting like a, a female pig and you pull it out and you can see all the reproductive organs and you're like, oh, that's probably kind of what mine looks like, you know, like, uh, yeah. In seeing, oh, yeah. yeah. And you, you see this, especially with pigs, because they're just way closer to what we look like than anything else being, you know, not ruminants, but even seeing, you know, whatever cow innards and and gutting sheep all the time and you're just like it it gives you it gives me a better understanding of myself and and what's happening with me so i was listening to your podcast with um oh gosh he has ulcerative colitis yeah brett i also have ulcerative colitis and i was told not to eat meat and i was that was the only dietary advice i was diagnosed probably 10 years ago and i asked what i should eat and they said just don't eat red meat basically. (laughs) Now it's, I eat so much fat and I eat so much red meat and this is the healthiest I've ever been. (laughs) But like seeing, seeing bodies, seeing the inside of bodies, having a better understanding of my body and then what is going into my body. And the, the, like, I I used to have a lot of self-loathing and a lot of body issues, like bad. (laughs) And food was either like, an indulgence or it was a punishment. You know, it was like, I, I, I did not find any joy in food. I didn't, it was there. It it was constant anxiety about what to eat, what not to eat. Well, now I don't feel good. And then having colitis and not feeling good and having a lot of self-loathing because I felt out of control. And I, I was like mad at my body (laughs) for being what it was. And which is, I, you know, I was skiing at the time and I was doing very physical, dangerous things and miraculously not getting hurt. So I should have been a little kinder to myself because I was actually able to do what I wanted to do. But now being in so much contact with these different bodies and seeing inside of them and the visceral connection, I have so much more self-compassion and self-love, you know, and I'm like, oh, this is just like this. I'm, I'm not that much different than this pig. Right. And I feel so much compassion for these animals. Why can't I feel it for myself? Sort of. And like, I don't know. I, it, it, it has given me, I had a dream. I, and I told Jesse about this a couple of weeks ago and he was like, whoa, because I had a dream that I was looking in the mirror and someone said, okay, we're going to transfer you to an, a different body. Like you have to like have this different body now. And it was some other girl. And I was looking in the mirror and I was like, I don't want to, I love this person. Like I, I just felt this deep love and I woke up and I was like, God, I did not know I felt that way. (laughs) And I swear it's like building this compassion and being so in touch with nature and with, I don't know, a better understanding of myself from a very, you know, basic standpoint from the fact that like holding intestines in my hands, like, Oh, that's my insides. And like, they're when I amazing. used to be kind of, de- they're amazing. The whole thing is so amazing. Like The part where <laughs> the, the liquidiness of the small intestine begins to solidify at this seemingly random point. <laughs> 
I, and I know this is going to, I don't know how it's going to sound. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Feels like the most magical thing I could fathom, right? Like to watch, I think, especially with ruminants, like the flow through the four different chambers and all the textures in each and every one of them. And then into the small intestine. And then suddenly, like, especially in a goat or a sheep, suddenly pebbles are there. Suddenly the little poop pebbles yeah. are just magically. <laughs> As if I, I don't understand. Like They're just out, all lined yeah. up. And it just, it just <laughs> happens. It's transformed. And, and I feel the same way, just this absolute magic that to see the inside of these bodies and to see myself in them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to be like any self-loathing or self-hatred that I had or any, you know, frustration with my health, it's like, uh, the whole thing is, is miraculous that it even works blows my mind. And it's all so beautiful. We have this guy uh, that comes in sometimes when we do bison and he takes literally everything like, and he, he has such a joy about, he's one of my favorite people. He comes in and he's just so excited and he's super goofy. And like, he'll take, he takes the bladders and he empties them and he'll do little like balloon tricks with him because he thinks it's funny. But the, the bladder itself is so gorgeous. Yeah. The, all the different fibers crisscrossing. And yeah. it's like, how, how I, we were skinning out uh, front legs the other day for a guy that wanted them for stock. And just looking at where the joints meet up with the foot, like when you cut the hoof off, how I, I just don't, <laughs> you couldn't create anything more beautiful. No, and you couldn't. Then to, to see it in others and to see it in yourself and to see it in, in other animals and just being like, this is unbelievable. And to have more self-love and then more love for other people and the things that other people are going through, right? Where it's like, I don't know. I don't know how it extends this far, but it has for me. <laughs> thank you for that. Just thank you for, thank you for that reflection of finding self-love through the miracle of these bodies. I, I was thinking about Albert Einstein had a quote that either you view everything as a miracle or nothing as a miracle. And I, I yes. think that when I'm, <laughs> when I'm butchering and especially when I'm gutting, I, I'm just sort of awestruck the entire time that the hundreds of thousands of years of evolution could, could bring forth such fascinating yeah. and beautiful perfection. It's, uh, it really is unbelievable. Yeah. And the, yeah. I love the microbes part of thing. I like, I yeah. think about, we talk about that a lot on the kill floor where it's like, we're just covered in blood all the time. You know, it's like, especially Jesse, Jesse, I think he, he definitely likes it more than we do, but like he'll, <laughs> you know, so he will stun or, you know, shoot a beef and then cut its throat. And at that point, the heart's still pumping. And so blood kind of goes everywhere. And so we're trying to collect it because the sewer system doesn't like it when we let a bunch of red blood go down the drain. So we're just like half of the day is spent shoveling blood off the floor. But, you know, it's like it is a dirty, dirty job. And all of us are just in it all the time. But we all joke that maybe our immune systems are stronger because you'll get the errant, you know, splatter in your mouth. And you're like, I don't really know what that was. It just went in my mouth. <laughs> and, you know, we're sitting there eating snacks right after we skinned and gutted, you know, eight pigs or whatever, or you're mid skinning a beef and you need to drink a coffee. And it's like, we're just in it all the time. Like you, you cannot gross any of us out, nope. first of all. <laughs> and it's not like there's anything gross. I no, mean, gutting, unless, unless you puncture something, which sucks sometimes, but really even that it's, 
it's not gross. It's just grass. <laughs> yeah, it's not gross. I mean, it's it's just part no. of the body. I so I I, I want to give this a little bit of of backstory. I you write for you do some freelance writing, and I was reading through your articles, and I loved that microbes kept reoccurring. Whether you ta- were talking about <laughs> lacto fermentation, or talking about making bread, or talking about the gut, and this is something that I think a lot about, especially when I'm butchering. Right? Is <laughs> because microbial, bacterial, microbial, fungal, viral, uh, DNA and cells so outnumber our own. We are more other than human that, that there's this real fascination about whether or not our evolution is just as a vehicle for these other species to, to traverse, to traverse the planet using us as a taxi cab. (laughs) And I think that that's really, I'm fine with that. I'm fine with that. I think that's great. (laughs) And I had the same experience, you know, when, when you're butchering, I mean, I'll, I'll, eat something with my hands when we're here at home and just butchering for ourselves, you know, and not wash them and stuff gets in your mouth and <laughs> on your face and on your skin. And, and I think it, that connection to your food really changes your microbiome. Josh and I would talk about this with cuts, which inevitably happen. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you, if you have to go get stitches, they really want to wash it out because they think that meat is dirty, but our skin microbiome is used to being in contact with all of this and yeah. really has this adjustment to all of the things that we're putting on it. And my, my husband and I do get sick less as I think a result of interacting with all of these microbes. Yeah, I'm sure farming too. I mean, I can't oh, yeah. imagine because you're out there with you're in it. Like, <laughs> I'm just I, I yeah. just I just am touching poop all day. That's really all it is. I just I'm really just a poop farmer. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's good for you. It's, it's got it can, it's got to be good. For, yeah, it's great. It's, it's my good. probiotics. I go out there. I rub the goats. Like I don't take a probiotic. That's it. Same. Same. I'm like I go to work. I skin a few animals. I maybe yeah. like get a splash of blood or, you know, cutting feet off, you'll get the liquid from in there and it splashes into your mouth or your mm-hmm. eyes. And you're like, mm-hmm. all right, I think I'm fine. I think I'm good. I think I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> I, did, I, I was having trouble with, I was having a colitis flare up about a year ago and I was trying to figure out what to do about it. And I ended up, uh, one doctor was like, well, you might have some dysbiosis and, you know, like a, some serious, uh, yeah, imbalances with your gut microbiota. And so I did all these different tests. And while my inflammation came back at a 10 out of 10, she was like, you're, you have zero dysbiosis. Like this is the most balanced gut microbiota I've ever seen. So what we're looking at is obviously just colitis, but like, and it was so reassuring because I, I believe all these things, but I don't know, you know, I'm just out there like sometimes trying to make myself feel better for having gotten some poop in my mouth, but mm-hmm. I, it's like <laughs> and to have that come back and to be like, this is unbelievable. Like whatever you're doing is working like, Oh my God. Okay. So I had this hypothesis and whether it is from being on the kill floor or from eating, I mean, my fridge and my pantry are just filled with everything fermented you could possibly think of. I don't know, but it's something seems to be working and, and it makes me like, I notice a difference in my overall health and the way that I look, like I look in the mirror and I'm like, I'm tired, but I don't look exhausted. And, you know, I'm 35, but I don't, I don't feel like it. And I don't think I look like I would have expected when I was younger to look, you know, I'm like, I don't know. There's something I I feel better than I have. I was talking to my 
my friend about this the other day, I feel better than I've ever, ever felt other than say when I was like a little kid running around on my best friend's farm and super happy. And now I'm like, I think I'm back to that same sort of health standard of just being outside, being around animals. And I, I, I feel so good. And it, it's kind of unbelievable to me every day when I wake up and like, dang, I did not think I would feel like this at 35. Yeah. I love, I, I, and I think you hit it. There's kind of a stool there. You're outside, you're being with animals and I would maybe ask you're doing something you love. And I think that that absolutely that changes things too. And I know, I know I feel better than I ever have, including in childhood doing this. Like I am the healthiest I have ever been at almost 34. And I think it's That's the awesome. magic of <laughs> sun and animals and doing something I love and being connected. And I think that yeah. too, right? Like, I think there, there is this aspect of feeling connected and I feel connected to the yeah. animals and to the land and to my community. And, and getting rid of, I mean, I think that, I think disconnection fosters so much anxiety and depression and that that is so it's, it's in your body. I mean, you can't, you can't separate it, even though it feels like it's in your head. I, I felt it in my body. I dealt with some serious depression for a long time and I still, you know, have some anxiety now and then, but it's a lot less than it used to be. But the connection part and feeling more solid in yourself as a human and more solid in your, you know, in your community, like you said, and as a being on this planet, even though it's baffling most of the time as to what's going on and why we're here, but it's like, you're at least working toward figuring it out or, or being okay with not knowing. And I think that comes out physically too. You're not holding all of that. I, I think it's a grief because it's a loss of connection. And I, and it, that's why I get pissed when I think really just my anger stems from being sad for people when it comes to like, and I will try not to go off on a rant on this, but like plant, plant-based meats and all these highly processed foods. You can rant. if we're going to talk about disconnection, it doesn't get any more disconnected than that. Right. Like, and it just breaks my heart for people because I do think people are struggling to find an answer and they're being fed some bullshit (laughs) and it's, people are not trying to make the wrong decision and they're trying to figure out what to do because we're told that all these catastrophic things are going to happen and are happening. And it's your fault. And it's just, and it's your fault. And it's such a terrible way to live and to feel guilty all the time for just being a human on this planet. And then being told that the solution is this thing that is actually probably going to make you feel so much worse. And it just makes me so mad at the people that are making all the money off of this because I see people watch an animal die out in a field or in on the kill floor. And it's like their world explodes. Like they, you can't go, you can't go back after that. Like you've seen something that you can't come back from in, I think in the best way possible. And I I think if more people could see that more often, you know, like hunters get, people have all kinds of opinions on hunting that it's not necessary anymore or that it's, you know, it's an old, we don't need to do it anymore. Cause my friend jokes, he's like, it makes me so sad that you had to kill that animal when you could have just gone to the grocery store. And I'm like, yeah, exactly. Right. Like <laughs> how, absurd, how absurd. And he thinks it's hilarious to say that, but it's like, I don't think that there's this idea that we've evolved past the point of needing to eat meat, right. That 
if we're going to continue <laughs> to be, and first of all, our bodies have not, we have the bodies of cavemen still basically yes. like, if, yes. Yeah. Definitively. But, yeah. Like it's no different. We're not, I, we were just saying, we're not even that much different from pigs. So we're not any different from the people 10, 20, 50,000 years ago on the inside. And then to be so disconnected and to think I like, I don't think that our evolution as humans in terms of what we're, what we're supposed to do now that we are, you know, at this point in human history where we have these technologies and, and we are living, thinking, sentient, philosophical beings who, who should know better, right? Like, oh, we should know better. If we're going to continue to be more human, then we should stop eating meat. Where in my mind, the way to be the most human is to continue eating meat, but to do it with the least amount of suffering possible. You know, I have letting these, because we know better, we shouldn't stop. We should now do better because we know better. And so the way to be more human is to be better. I don't like the word stewards because I don't think we're in charge of anything, but to be just to be better to the animals that we're living with. Right. And like, that's what makes us more human. That's our responsibility now, not to stop eating meat, but to do a better job of it. To be more connected. And I, I th- this is what comes up for me when you say more human, it is to be more connected to our food, not less. Yeah. And I can't yeah. imagine anything less connected, less involved than plant-based burgers. Like, yeah, that, especially like... Those ingredients had... I mean, you can't even fathom the industrial processes. Those ingredients traveled around the globe to get to you in during... Right, right. Yeah. And thinking, speaking of like small communities and keeping money within you know, small economies, you buy one of these impossible burgers, no farmer is making any money off of that. Like that is going, you are letting big corporations be in charge of your food choices. They're making a ton of money. Like if we want to talk about autonomy and food sovereignty, this is the exact opposite route to go because you're giving up all control of your health, of your money, of your environment to people who don't care. They don't care. You know, like Tyson, foods, which is they raise the most chickens in the U S and not, not in a great way. <laughs> they have a processed or a plant-based meat brand. So does cargo. So it's yes. Like you're not removing money from the system. Yeah. You're just putting it into a different pipe into the exact same yes. system. And so the people that you, if you are against animal, you know, consumption and you're, you, I, which I can't argue with, you know, if someone doesn't want to eat animals, I w- that's your right. I won't argue with that because I get it. That like I I love the goats and the sheep and the pigs and the cows and I would never say to someone that feels uncomfortable killing and eating animals that they have to do it. Like that's just not. But but and and the suffering aspect of the of the industrial side of it, I will never endorse. You know, it's like I get that it's a thing and I get that it's feeding people and I'm glad that people have food, but I don't like the way it happens. But if your point in eating plant-based meats is to remove yourself from that system, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. You're just, you're just giving them more money through a different route. And I don't think people know that. And that's what makes me mad. Not at the people, but at the, at the, the top. And I think that this has been a really beautiful point that you've come back to throughout this conversation, which is it's, this isn't on the individual. These are, you know, these are systemic issues that are beyond that of the individual. And I think 
one of the most difficult things that our modern industrial food system has done is to, in a lot of ways, through marketing, through greenwashing, to place the onus of change at the level of the individual consumer. Yeah. Yep. I mean, like, you know, switching from plastic straws to metal straws. Yeah, It's like, uh, I, I people, but people are grasping at things to do because yes, because they want control. Things are scary because they want control, and we're yeah. being told that things are out of control and the world's going to end basically. And it's like that's a terrible thing to live with every day and to think that it's your fault. And it is so unfair to people that are going to live their lives feeling like that instead of feeling the joy of being alive and the miracle of being human and like how unbelievable it is. Like if you're going to feel bad, feel anger at the people that are perpetuating it. You know, don't be mad at yourself. Don't be mad at the person that eats McDonald's every day because that's the easiest thing for them to feed themselves. You know, like, don't be mad at them. (laughs) We're set up for failure. And people are, I do believe for the most part, doing the best they can, or they're maybe not the best, but they're, they're trying, people are trying, you know, and we aren't given a lot of tools to succeed. And so don't be mad at yourself. There are way better things to be pissed at and to put that energy into And I think until people realize that, we're just going to keep infighting and and blaming ourselves and buying metal straws and throwing away plastic ones. And it's like, I understand that that feels like a solution in the moment. And it's, you know, if you feel good for probably a day or two or when you pull your metal straw out, but (laughs) there are way bigger problems. And yeah, yeah. And I think that paradigm shift from feeling like everything is your fault and just feeling the weight of the world. And I don't blame anyone for feeling that way into feeling the joy of living and the curiosity of everything that is unfurling around you. I think that when you make that shift and at times I think that's a choice, right? There are times when I wake up in the morning and I, you know, I read the news or something, whatever it is, right. Whatever happens. Yeah precipitates my mood in that day. And it's a decision that I am going to re-engage with joy or with curiosity or with the miracle of a small intestine shifting into a large (laughs) intestine, whatever that is. I think that really begins to change what's happening because at the, you know, because the individual is powerful, right? And that, that's something I don't want to get lost in this conversation because just because the onus isn't at the individual, like there is a lot of power at the individual level and at that shift. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. And I think that if we can all individually recognize that, that like our power is, it's bigger than, than changing the kind of straws that we use or, 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 you know, the kind of car that we drive, like we're way more powerful than that. So to, to subdue ourselves into thinking that the best we can do are these very small changes, like as an individual, you're infinitely powerful, more powerful than that. Whether it's like, I don't know, I don't necessarily want to run for office, but it would be a way to change something or even, I mean, like there are people that I deal with all the time that I vehemently disagree with their political views, you know, and, and, but it doesn't matter because we're working toward a similar goal and I like the people and, and, and figuring out how to like harness your individual power and your compassion for each other, because that is unbelievably powerful to like have compassion for one another instead of, shutting each other down and, and feeling a, a hatred or, or despising someone because you don't understand why they believe a thing they believe or 
I don't know. I think that's where the power lies. It's not, it's not in the individual consumer choices. It's in like loving each other and, and really trying to understand each other and understanding that you probably won't agree with that or you won't understand that. And that's fine because you have a vastly different life experience than that person. And so your judgment isn't, you know, it, it kind of doesn't matter because you don't, it'd be so boring if we were all the same. <laughs> and like I was it saying, would be uh, so about, boring. it'd be so boring. And it's so boring to be like, I was, I was, had mentioned to you about trying to prove myself wrong. I was going to bring that up right here. This is the perfect oh, place for it. I, <laughs> I love being wrong. I love being wrong. And I really, when I was in grad school, it, it's just, I had these wonderful professors in grad school and they constantly challenged everything that we thought. And they would present one idea and make you struggle to understand it. And then they present the other side of it and make you struggle with that and make you like come to terms with the fact that maybe you didn't know what you thought, or you thought you knew something and you were totally not necessarily wrong, but you didn't know enough to, to have the whole picture. And so moving forward with those skills and especially, you know, going from, I was in Portland, Oregon, and now I live in Montana and I, Jesse and I just bought a, a property well, two acres, like an hour from town. So we're even further out and in, in a rural area where the people are much different than they were in Portland. You know, it probably can't get much different in terms of dichotomies in the U.S. And being like, I really like both of these places and all of these people. And I don't, I don't understand some of, I might not agree with what people think, but it's not up to me. And and I don't know things that they know and they don't know things that I know. And so to, to ignore people or discount people or just be in your own bubble, I don't think, I don't think that's the way to do it. I think it's our collective like differences that are, are going to be the only thing that solves any of this, not, make not battling each other. Yeah. yeah. And to have compassion. I, Seeking disconfirmation is something that I'm really passionate about. It's something I try to do in my everyday life, especially when I feel myself getting particularly attached to a viewpoint. Like the more I see my attachment or oftentimes I'll recognize it in my, in my anger or my opposition towards a different idea. That's always a clue for me that it's, it's time to, it's time to dive into that viewpoint so that I understand it a little. How can I understand that? a little bit better. And I did, I did a podcast all about this with Will Roosh, who is one of my favorite people for seeking disconfirmation, mm-hmm. because I think it's really important that we try to put ourselves in other shoes and to look at other ideas, especially those ones that we find ourselves reacting strongly to and, and to explore them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, being uncomfortable, like we're saying on the kill floor or on a farm. And you're like, I'm, I hate being cold. I hate being cold. It's four degrees right now. Right. And like, I got to go to work tomorrow and kill a bunch of beef and it's going to be snowing into the building. And I, I hate being cold, but I love that job. And I, one of my favorite things to do is traveling by myself. And I have spent weeks by myself all around Europe. And it's one of my favorite things to do to be uncomfortable but I hate flying, which also makes me uncomfortable. But it's like, I know there's a, a I know the end point is, you know, worth it. But putting myself in uncomfort, un- uncomfortable situations, and especially traveling alone, and like in, you know, Eastern European countries, and it's like, I don't know what's going on here. I don't even I can't come close to speaking the language. I'm by myself, my phone doesn't really work. Like, 
feeling uncomfortable and, and then like putting yourself in situations to meet people and to be surprised by people that you maybe don't speak the same language. You can only speak a couple words or you maybe don't have the same political or worldly views. And then being treated so compassionately by those people, right? That they're strangers and they know that you're an American that doesn't know what's going on. And then they feed you or they take you on some trip or point you in the right direction or help you buy your train ticket. You know, it's like there are people everywhere that are down to help. And if you can put yourself in the position of being uncomfortable and of trusting people to an extent, right? I mean, yes, I, I just think your world can open up into this. It's a much bigger place. The world is small, but it's a much bigger place and it's so complex and mind blowing. And the people, I don't know, people are, I think for the most part, trying to help others and, but we have to be able to help ourselves first. Right. So it's like people need to be set up for success and then we can try to reach out to each other. But I don't know where to start with all that, honestly. No, I think that was beautiful. And I think that that, that going through intellectual discomfort is what I'm going to call some of that going through some intellectual discomfort or some discomfort in your value systems being challenged, even if they're just challenged, because suddenly you find yourself enjoying being at the dinner table with somebody whose political ideologies are vastly different than your own, right? Like to, to be in those situations, I think, and to go back to a lot of what we've talked about in this is to be human. And I think it brings us back to a connection point of our humanity of being connected to one another, despite our differences. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and we have a choice now to separate ourselves into different groups, right? Whether it's like who you follow on social media or, or who you work with or whatever. But for a long time, that was not an option. And so people were forced to deal with everyone's crap and, and the stuff you didn't agree with. And I think I like, you know, family groups, like within families where people disagree and, and you learn to deal with it. But I think people even now are unwilling to do that. And families fracture because someone voted for someone and someone voted for someone else. And you just can't believe that they would do that. And it's like, I, there's so much more here, but there's so much more here. <laughs> there's so much. Oh more my God. Here. It's just, yeah. <laughs> and to bring it all back to the kill floor, like seeing death every day and watching life end and seeing how fragile it is and how quickly it can go. There's a lot of stuff you just don't care about anymore. And I think that, you know, petty disagreements and not to say that politics are petty because they are, you know, they deeply affect all of our lives, but to turn politics into hating your fellow human. I think if we were more connected with who we are as, as animals on this planet. And I think if we had a better connection to, to death and, and how, how short everything is. And I don't know if death is final. Like I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm, we'll we'll all find out someday. And I'm, I'm glad that we all get to find out. I would be so disappointed if some people got to die and figured out and others of us didn't like it's, there are other things on earth that I will never get to experience, right? Like ways of being on the planet of, of, if you're an animal, if like a certain type of person, like, I don't, I won't know what that's like, but the thing that we all get to experience is dying and we all get to actually find out what happens. And to me, that's like a grand mystery that whether you figure out if it's solved or not, it's a grand mystery that you get to experience. So to be afraid of it, 
I don't know. It's kind of a, it's kind of a privilege because it's the one thing we can't figure out. But to that point, like we know it's going to happen and being cognizant of it rather than afraid of it and being like, all right, I probably have at best, you know, 60 years left, which is not a lot of time. <laughs> like, what are you going to do that actually makes you happy and makes other people happy and is like beneficial to someone somewhere, whether it's a dog or your community or I don't know, just we don't have a lot of time, which is a good thing because if we had a lot of time, I think we'd, we'd waste it. <laughs> Not that we don't now. <laughs> but I think that, I think that what you just said is so beautiful. And I think that when you get a chance to interact with death, it changes how you want to spend your time. Yeah. And yeah, we're, we're missing this interaction piece. I, I think Thanks that's such a beautiful piece <laughs> and we don't have to end it there. I want to make sure that we caught and encapsulated some of what you wanted to talk about today, but that was, that was just such a beautiful way of sort of bringing it all together. Um, <laughs> but I do want to make sure that we talked about, you know, the things that were in your heart. Oh, absolutely. I think we, we touched on all of it and I probably sort of ping ponged around. I, I always, <laughs> when I try to explain my brain, I'm like, imagine a room and then you just like dump a bunch of bouncy balls in it. Like that's what my brain feels like all the time with everything that I'm thinking of. So I know I end up talking that way too, where it's like all these different things, but everything in my mind is connected. I can't disconnect any of this. And so I don't know. That's just, that's just how my brain works. But I think we touched on, on most of the bouncy balls that are that are really in there. there. <laughs> yeah. Cause that's really important to me. And I actually, I really, I, I feel that I feel the bouncy ball, uh, the big bouncy ball arena in the brain. And I actually <laughs> think that you did a really beautiful job of illuminating all of these pieces. And even more than that, finding those threads of connection through your perspective and your experience. And I, I, I loved it. And so, well, thank you. It's been awesome to talk to you about this, that, you know, you have different, a different experience and different perspectives. But I think we like in listening to the podcast and in, in looking at your social media, like, I think we think about things very similarly in terms of like the routes that we go when something comes up and, and the sort of thought processes we have and, and trying to connect everything. And so it's, it's been a real pleasure getting to talk to you about all this. I feel the exact same way. I just admire your work so much. And I'll say it again. I think that the way that you're illuminating both the everyday, just what it looks like and then pulling together all of these connective threads that you did in the context of this podcast, but that you do with forage fed that you do in your writing and just on social media is so important. I think that you're highlighting, you're highlighting that hourglass, that pinch point that is happening. And I think that there's so much for me that I think that a lot happens in that pinch point. Like if we can begin to expand that, we are expanding so much more than just that one thing. And so I'm, I'm just deeply appreciative of the work and the exploration and, and of your curiosity for all of this. Well, thank you. Right back at you. <laughs> um, I want to send people to forage fed. I want to send people to your articles. I also want to send them to Jesse's knives. Um, yeah. which are incredible. So tell everyone where we can find all of your things. So I'm most active on social media and it's just at Anna Borgman. I also have my forage fed Instagram, which I don't update as much, but as, uh, 
as this winter progresses. And Jesse and I are, are working on doing some sort of a mobile slaughter stuff and some classes pretty soon. And so that will hopefully be updated a little bit more. And I'll have some classes going by the, uh, by the spring to do some, some slaughter and at least some butchery classes. So that's at forage fed. And then Jesse's Instagram, I believe is we'll link to it. Uh, yeah. Okay. It's, he just changed it. So it's Jesse Vossler, Jesse Vossler underscore vigilante forge. And he makes gorgeous knives. Yes, he does. We're I'm going to get one of his skinning knives shop. one of these days. <laughs> yes, you should. They're, oh, yeah. they're awesome. And he's got, one. yeah, he, yeah, that's, that's pretty great. He's an artist for sure. But yeah, that's what we're up to right now. And I'm excited to get forage fed going again in the, in the spring. And with the little property we just bought, having a little more space to, uh, yeah. to do some of the stuff we want to do. So that'll be really yeah. cool. I think, well, I think it's amazing and I'll keep people up to date. Just send me things and I'll, I'll, I'll repost, but I'm just so appreciative well, and I can't wait for people to hear this episode. I, this one has been in my heart to do for a while. And so I'm just so grateful for you coming on and, and talking to me about all of these things. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. This is awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Groundwork Podcast. If what you heard today resonated with you, may I ask that you share it with your friends or leave us a review? This helps others find Groundwork. If you're looking for more, you can find us at GroundworkCollective.com and at Groundwork Collective on Instagram. I would like to give a very special thank you to China and Seth Kent of the band All Right, All Right for clips from the beautiful song Over the Edge from their album, The Crucible. You can find them at All Right, All Right on Instagram and wherever you listen to music.